0: Welcome to the Make Books Travel podcast. I'm your host, Marlene Seegers, co-founder of Two Seas Agency, a boutique literary agency based in Ojai, California. Join me and take a glimpse behind the scenes of the international publishing world through my conversations with key players of the industry. My guests all have one thing in common. They make books travel. For instance, from one language to another from idea or manuscript to published book, or from page to screen. Find out how they do it, and why. Thank you for listening, and now on to today's show. Welcome to a new episode of the Makebooks Travel podcast. Joining me today is Chad Post publisher of Open Letter Books at the University of Rochester in upstate New York, which is dedicated to publishing contemporary literature from around the world. At Open Letter, he also oversees the 3% website, the translation database, and the Best Translated Book Awards. In addition to many articles and reviews, he is also the author of the book The 3% Problem, and the editorial consultant for Dalkey Archive Press. Over the course of the years, Chad and I have been on several panels together to discuss the state of literary translation in the U.S., which always led to lively and insightful conversations. So I thought it was high time to invite him on the podcast, which I'm glad he agreed to. So here is my interview with Chad Post. (gasps) Hi, Chad. How Hi. are you doing? Hey. Pretty
1: good. Pretty good. As good as you could be doing, I guess. Yeah. All during- things
0: all <laughs> things considered.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah past your aside, I'm fine. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> well, thank you for joining me uh, today. It's uh it's really um going to be an interesting discussion, I think. Um so thank you for taking the time. Yeah, um yeah, I, so I don't know if you remember, but one of the last times that I saw you in person, speaking of, you know, <laughs> last year and whatever, you know, happened um, to the world. Um, so the last time that I saw you in person was in Amsterdam, um, when we yeah. really randomly ran into each other. Yep. <laughs> Yep,
1: <laughs> and we almost said we almost did, we, di- we almost did again in March. We almost could have last year, but
0: last year apparently yes, that's uh, so. Do you do you usually go to um, do you visit European cities before you go to book fairs or? It, uh, if sometimes make... if
1: I can. That would that that'd be great. I did uh, the time I ran into you in Amsterdam was because we were um I was in London for a different event and a different set of things, and then uh, wanted to go see Dubrovka Grashik to talk about her archives. So when she
0: lives in Amsterdam.
1: She lives in Amsterdam. Mm-hmm. So, so, I went and stayed at her house for a couple of days, and I hadn't been to Amsterdam in years, so it was really nice. Mm.
0: Mm. Yeah, it was so funny because I was locking my bike because I was a, yeah. I, I was on my way to a meeting.
1: <laughs> There's yeah, like,
0: Yeah, I was like, wait, is that Chad at the other end of the street? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, yeah, so you, oh. this is
1: a funny, funny segue. But John Freeman and I used to see each other everywhere else in the world but never in america <laughs> it would be like at any random festival or it'd be like a, you know some sort of like editorial trip or whatever and he would just be there and like mm-hmm. i'd run in and be like how is this happening but like mm-hmm. never once in new york
0: <laughs> it's like you're avoiding each other in new york <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> almost yeah right well um anyway so again happy to have you on the podcast and i, I often when i talk about you I refer to you as Mr. Translation in the U.S. <laughs> I, I, I realize this is a one-sided and extremely yeah. simplistic description but it does reflect how I got to know you which is as the expert of literary translation in the U.S. I mean according to my own experience uh, how do you feel about this description I mean I hear you're already cracking up so <laughs> yeah
1: I do but I don't translate. I am, I am I am an advocate and a and a publisher, but not mm-hmm. an active translator. So, mm-hmm. so it's sort of like it's a it, it's a it, I feel like it's a nice compliment, but like you know, a little little broad, they'll reach oh.
0: <laughs> I mean I, I did say Mr. Translation and not Mr. Translator, translator. right? Yeah, so that's bad, that's bad. <laughs> that's so how did your interest in in all things translation start out? So you you say you're not a translator yourself. So yeah, did no, you spend time abroad? How? Yeah, tell us no, about actually
1: it. Actually, not at all. So I was working at um, various bookstores after I graduated from college, and in and and continued to pursue like the reading that I really liked from uh, what I was reading in college. So that included a lot of like American authors, but also like Julio Cortazar, um, and then I got into reading a lot of Delky archive books and the French Olympian writers really attracted me. So I started reading a lot of those and just started looking for other books from around the world that seemed uh, worthy and interesting. While I was working at the bookstore, I'd have access to like be able to order anything that was in print and be able to check it out. And so at, um, when I was working at Quail Ridge books in Raleigh, North Carolina, uh, we I did an experiment where I took all of our fiction section and made a global section and broke it down into regions or countries. Mm. Um, and we just one to be able to just see what we had, because I was I was like becoming more and more interested in reading books from outside the US in addition to reading books from the US. But there is it was hard to figure out what they were. There's no there had been no there was no system, right? There's no like mm. here are the translations. It was it was just like guessing game. And so I pulled them all out and put them into a different section. And organize it that way, and the sales shot up for wow. for the books. But I'd gotten really interested in in the literature and the different structures and the different approaches that a lot of those authors, like the Cortazar's of the world and the Lippian writers, obviously um, take. That's different than what you know I'd been exposed to of like a classic American neo realist writing style. So hmm. I got I really like that. And then I moved from the bookstore to. Being an intern at Delkey Archive, uh, I think we called it a fellowship for a few months and I was hired full time and it was at Delkey when I was there initially, we were doing mostly reprints of out of print books that were in translation or out of print books from American authors or British authors. And then we started getting into the position because of the growth of the company and the employees are there that we could expand into doing new books and then to doing new translations as it became clear like nobody else is and we had Mm. like a really good opportunity to like pick really great books really great authors out of all of these countries throughout the world and at that time and this is the early two thousands a lot of the the book um, office offices throughout the world were had kind of given up on America. For the most mm-hmm. part from, like the germans um and the french like everyone else had kind of given up i remember talking to someone from finland from Philly, and she mm-hmm. was like yeah we haven't sent a book to we don't send our catalogs to american publishers anymore because nobody's bought anything in like 20 years mm. um and so they were very excited to bring us and introduce us to authors to the literary community to the publishers to agents And it was like a great opportunity to like see the world, but also like learn about all these different uh, sets of authors, different like perspectives, different histories. And that's where it was really became solidified that it wasn't just like I really like reading books by these famous authors, but being able to be like, wow, this is a really interesting job and opportunity and like a discovery. Like it was very much like, a you know, looking for, I mean, sort of what you do, I, I think in a way, it's sort of like the agenting or scouting where you find something, you're looking to find something that's unique and special. And we had the option to do that at that point in time as like the only press that started focusing on translations at that moment. So it was mm-hmm. like a really wonderful opportunity sort of like gifted, it just like fell into, but then mm-hmm. just developed and developed and developed.
0: And how long did you stay with uh, Dalkey Archive? I was
1: at Delkin until the end of 2006 and then mm-hmm. moved here to, to Rochester to start open letter. Um, and we open letter officially started in 2007, but our first books came out in 2008. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And, and, and how did you how did you find found it uh, because it's attached to the University of Rochester, right? Correct.
1: It's part of the university. Mm-hmm. So the university wanted to have um, like a translation program, both the master's level and for undergrads. And as part of that, they wanted to have a press that would be publishing, you know, high level, um, interesting works, changing the like the 3% problem, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a bit. But trying to like address that and being able to provide practical experience to the translators and the students who would be coming into the program and give like the university like a high profile, you know, public face that re- represented both like the the literature programs here, but the, especially the translation. So. Open Letter came out of that, um, out of that kind of impulse, and that then from the beginning to the end, there's only been three full time employees working at the press, so it's it's still relatively small in that sense, and we haven't really grown. We have, we still do ten books a year, um, and do more of these like extra things, like the the website and podcast and the Best Translated Book Award and things like that. But the book core itself has remained pretty solid, of like doing about the same number of books every year and maintaining like that uh level of quality um mm. and the sales have gradually increased over time too which uh, obviously is, is a good thing but it's been it's it, that's more or less where it came from and like then it intersects with all these different parts of the university so we as a publishing house we get a lot of attention because we'll get reviewed for the books and that reflects well on the university when it comes up and gets mentioned there and then mm-hmm. with the students any student who's interested in translation and like a in like a normal year, we'll use our office as kind of like a base and I'll help uh, edit their translations or review them or give them um, books that they could or contacts that they could have to try and find books that they want to translate. Um, and working, teaching two, and I teach two classes: one on publishing and one on international literature. So it's a good, it's a good it, open letter, and it's it's non not thinking about just as a publisher but as an organization. It's a really good academic fit in that mm. in that way.
0: Hmm. and you you translate um or you, you publish books and translation from around the world i i assume yep yeah, yeah we
1: only do books in translation sorry i should mm-hmm. have said that yeah, same, but, yeah. <laughs> only in translation um mm-hmm. we have done i forget how many countries it is now but it's a pretty wide range of countries um and we there are certain parts there are gaps obviously and they're like places where we do a lot more books than others but Mm -hmm. it's been pretty balanced in terms of getting out as far as we can into different different parts of the world um and different voices from all over
0: Hmm. and and how um why did the university of rochester have such a strong interest in starting this this translation um department did it already have a strong languages Um,
1: i mean they sort of did but they i mean they do i don't want to discount their language programs mm but There was sort of a confluence of like the right deans being in place, um, the right people in charge of the departments, and the idea that like the new, one of the new deans at that point in time wanted to create a signature program. This is a very Rochester mm. term that they used for a while was like, what is our signature program? What's different than other places? And at the time in like 2006, you know, when this starts this conversation starts, there weren't very many universities that had... Developed translation programs. There were like the um, Iowa, obviously, is a big one. Um, Amherst says so to a lesser degree Columbia at that time, but there wasn't anything like that was there wasn't there weren't there weren't a lot so there wasn't a lot of competition. Mm-hmm. And they saw was a place to like really make a mark and do something that was unique and nimble and addressing uh, a different sort. Like we always look at it, you and I think from like the publishing or um, the market perspective, and mm-hmm. for them there's another kind of issue to it is that the comp lit departments have been evolving and changing over the number of years and losing interest. And a lot of people, a lot of students um, are no longer, you know, getting majors in specific languages. And that translation studies sort of can embody more than just language, more than just English classes, more than it can incorporate business to some degree. There's a lot Mm -hmm. that can be mixed in there. So the students would have a better, there there was a hope that the students would want to do that if they couldn't do comp lit or or wanted to do something that wasn't strictly in that academic vein of like the comparative literature uh departments mm.
0: hmm interesting yeah, and so you mentioned the three percent uh <laughs> problem or the three percent um matter issue uh, and also um I think you you mentioned the translation database can you can you tell us a bit more about those so you there's this three percent blog and then the the translation database uh which you both. Started, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. The three percent website was um, initially launched in the summer of 2007 because we knew at that time we had figured out like what our first books would be and when they would be published, and all that was getting rolling. But there was like a big gap, you know, it was like 18 months between like starting and like publishing anything, and that felt like a very long time, especially having moved from from Delky, which was doing like 25, 30 books a year, to doing nothing for like. You know, 16, 18 months. I was like, I don't care much for that. Um, well, I was still young. I was hyper. I had energy. I didn't. I didn't have too many children. Um, <laughs> I was, you know, things were better than. Uh, but so I started the, started the blog with the idea that we would be able to write about the behind-the-scenes aspect of publishing literature and translation, and be a place where you could advocate for making connections between booksellers, translators, and readers, and authors, and try and like. Cover things, so it was at the beginning it was a more traditional blog of like news responses and news items, um and then like essays that would sort of highlight books that weren't being translated yet or and deserved a home and had maybe won an award in some other country, or just like general information on how things work um mm-hmm. so that people would know because I think at that point in time in particular, that translators, I mean, translators don't generally know what the publishing industry is like even nowadays before they get involved in it. But at mm-hmm. that point, it was really like that, that amount of knowledge wasn't just publicly available mm-hmm. in the same way that it was it is now. And so the blog was designed sort of with that in mind to like grow and try and create this sort of community and, uh, you know, create a name for, for open letter and the process as a whole through that. But, all, but mainly to be like an a good place to advocate for things. And we started also as a big review blog because the, um, there were, there were no reviews of, of books in translation at that time. Mm. Like it was very, very rare, very rare. Um, and to touch on, so we named it the 3%, we named it 3% because of the famous um, statistic that had come about from both like Bowker and Publishers Weekly and a few different sources where there's an estimate that of all the books published in America, only 3% were in translation. And I wanted to use that as like a as like a uh, provocative thing to be like, you know, you should be paying attention more to this and as a way of like highlighting the disparity and being like potential fundraising tool of like, we need to solve this problem, but we can't solve this problem without either lots more readers or lots more money. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was kind of a combination of those things, but it's since become like almost like uh, not an albatross, but we've gotten <laughs> that over the past like 10 years, it's become very focused on like, that number and and we were focused on that number that percentage what the total number of books were so on and so forth and as part of that um Elliot Weinberger had told me that like he's like the three percent thing is wrong he's like it's much lower than that he's like I get every translation and there just aren't that many this was in 2008 or 2007 and um so then I set about and it's like well you know if it's not that many like you could count them then and like mm-hmm. Bowker's information, when they said that it was 3%, it was just a, a sheer number. There's no way that they, they didn't have any detail on like mm-hmm. who or from where or from or what. And as someone who's like always been uh, uh, like into statistics and into like data, um, it seemed to me like it's a really it's very lacking that we can't find that information.
0: Mm-hmm. So I
1: put together a database on my computer um, that I built out of FileMaker to keep mm-hmm. track of like every book that I could find. So I went through every catalog. I went through every like books received I could find every um, one of the uh, uh, which one called the embassies that are the the book offices like but they mm-hmm. have reports that come out emailed all these people tried to just add on everything and kept track of like the title author publisher country of origin for the author language the book was translated from um, and then later we added in price pub date. That kind of thing, and then later we added on um, author gender and translator gender to be able to mm-hmm. look into that as well, mm-hmm. and went back and, and added that to the whole the whole uh, set of data that we had. And it was surprising that the first year, two thousand eight, there were only like three hundred and sixty books of fiction and poetry. And I also, mm-hmm. just to clarify, restricted it to fiction and poetry and no retranslations because I didn't okay. want to. I didn't want it to get overwhelmed by like the fourteen new. Uh, translations of Dostoevsky that come out at yeah. like, a given <laughs> point in time. Or like mm-hmm. poetry is especially difficult for that because it gets retranslated a lot. Mm-hmm. Like Goethe, Rilke, there's certain poets that keep getting retranslated. And so I wanted to not have that and have it be like about like, what are the new, who are the new voices? what are the What is the new literature being made mm-hmm. available to English readers through the act of translation? Not what is the new version of a piece of literature that we're familiar with? So mm-hmm. it restricted it to that, but still 360 is not a lot. Um, mm-hmm. not yeah. a lot at all. And as part of that, we decided to launch the best translated book award because I, I was really, there's some web posts I can't find anymore, but like where I was like super pissed one day. Cause it was like snowing. It's Rochester. It's cold. It's a lot of snow. And it was like the best year on best books of the year lists were all coming out. Mm-hmm. And none of them included a book in translation. I was like, mm-hmm. this is so stupid. And they, they're just like willfully not going to do that at that point in time. And And that's changed so much. And like, that's changed so much. It's hard to even think back at a point where like it was super dismissed, but translations were dismissed. And so we decided to do this award because we thought that it would be a way to bring attention to books that were great, that might've slipped through the radar, so on and so forth. And for the first year of it, we just put together a list of 25 books from like a group of, uh, of readers, um, Mm -hmm. like, uh, that, that were very, you know, very aware of what's being translated. And we put together this list uh, and had the public vote on who would win. Um, but so it wasn't like, it was like a prize that was awarded through, through proxy votings. But, um, but we found that of the 25 books on the long list, I think 21 of them didn't have a single review. Oh, wow. (laughs) It was like, it was a huge percentage. And like, at some point in time as we wrote that up, if you started Googling some of these titles the only hit you would be the website.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. And what year was this when you started the Best Translated Book Awards?
1: 2008.
0: Oh, also. So everything happened, basically. Everything in- happened in 2008. Yeah.
1: Was like, they they're like, both happened together because it was like, oh, mm-hmm. let's do X and then let's use that to make
0: Y. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And um, and so have you, so you obviously you, you said that the. The concept of three percent, you it came from Balker's and from Publishers Weekly. I think you mentioned. Yeah. So, they, um, did, did so? Did you find that it was actually indeed less than three percent? It's hard
1: to calculate. So there's different ways that you can you can do it. It's um, and the PW thing was actually the National Endowment for the Arts had used PW's uh, review archives to estimate like how many books had been in translation. So it's like it was there. It wasn't an official report. It was like oh. just the study that they did um, mm-hmm. using PW. But um. The, I forgot what your question was. No,
0: that's all right. I, I got no, I no, saying, no, because I got be, the well, because um, I can't remember oh, the name, but yeah, if it was less, cause somebody claimed actually that was that it was yeah, even less but, than three percent. So
1: what's tricky about it is if you they stop, Belker, Belker stopped releasing data on like how many books are published every year, but if we go by what was there like a number a few years ago and it probably hasn't changed too too much, there's around two hundred twenty five thousand new books every year from traditional publishing houses, traditional get ISBN, normal publishing, mm-hmm. uh, straightforward books a year. And like 50,000 are works of like fiction and poetry. Um, 360 is not 3% of 50,000. Um, but
0: mm-hmm.
1: it's, it's, it's also weird that because th- so 3% of the fiction, probably not, it's probably a little bit lower. Um, it depends because there. are it's so hard to count this and to calculate these percentages yeah. because as you increase in, in translations, you're also increasing in books that aren't in translation. So like the denominator and the numerator both move in tandem. Mm. So the percentage is rarely going to change. And this is kind of the problem with it. People are like, we need to get it up to like 6%. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, but that would but the way that we, we should do that is not by like pumping out more books. It's by reducing the number of books that <laughs> are being published at <laughs> lot. It would be mm. much more effective. And when mm-hmm. Bowker calculated their 3%, I think I the only way that I could figure out how they got to this was that they included first, they could include a lot of anime, which, which we mm. didn't at that time. Um, mm. uh, a lot of main guy, I mean, um, because all those books are, all those books are translated and there's series upon series upon series upon series. And they are so many and so prolific that that would, that would weigh things in a certain direction, right? That would add on a lot of titles. And then the second thing was, I'm not, I'm not convinced that they didn't count language books as translations because they uh-huh. had multiple languages. So anything that had like multiple languages and they might have counted as translation. And then that ends up being like, also like a boost to the number. But yeah, I think it's lower. Um, but, to, and that's where like, so sort of like, I hope that we can, we can start to like, instead of figuring out that problem, figure out like the <laughs> readership problem.
0: Hmm. Mm-hmm. which is
1: getting more readers for the books is far more important than producing more books in my
0: my opinion mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and just just one quick question so so obviously you're not counting any nonfiction at yeah, all
1: started to um so it is on mm-hmm. so now the translation database it used to be on my computer alone on mm-hmm. my computer and i would run reports and share them in excel documents and then a couple of years ago um it moved to publishers weekly where it's an Mm -hmm. online database that everyone can search and you can add things that are missing. You don't add them. If you add them and they're missing, they don't appear automatically. I have to approve them, double check and do background things on it. Um, But that then now you can, anyone can search it and anyone can access what's there. So you can see like how the numbers have increased over over time. You can narrow it down to like, you want to know how many um, female writers from Ecuador were published in translation. You can find that. You can find all this little, all these like more specific like, Data digging, and so that became that's that's been fun. And as part of that, it's been able to add on children's books and nonfiction, Mm -hmm. Um, but they're not complete. Like there, there's there's I've got a stack of like four hundred pages of titles to enter for nonfiction um, Mm -hmm. over the ten going back to like two thousand and eight when it started and clearing it up. But there are if you go to the website, go to the translation database, you can search nonfiction and anything that's current will be in there that I mm-hmm. found. Um, mm-hmm. And people have the things are missing, add it, just add it, add it all. And I'll go, I go in and see like the unverified mm. records and, and mm-hmm. put them in there and on, on all in all my spare time, um, <laughs> uh, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> which is not taken up by kids. Mm-hmm. Um, they, but like there, so now there is nonfiction that's, that's being tracked in there. Mm-hmm. And yeah.
0: Okay. And children's, yeah. So this is a, I guess, a call to to the listeners. Uh, go mm-hmm. ahead and uh, and well, add I... any information. <laughs> let's uh, let's give okay. Chad some uh, <laughs> some more things to verify. about <laughs> besides the four hundred pages that he that he still has to do. <laughs> no, but I'm I'm kidding. But so, what do you think about like the success of some international authors in recent years here in the U.S. Like Elena Ferrante, Frederick mm-hmm. um, even Knausgaard. Um, you know, and and it, more generally, there's there's now more publishing houses that are that focus on books in translation. Besides, of course, Open Letter, um, but I'm thinking about Europa Editions and 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 you know several others. So, how do, do you, yeah, do you still think? I mean, obviously, it's uh, I'm trying to step away from the three percent here, as as you uh, as you incited earlier on. But do you think that that the readership has increased with also the the probably the higher um you know visibility of of translations
1: yeah definitely i don't know if the total number of readers of that are like to for lack of a better word chronic readers of translation i don't know that the for people who are like you know way into it that that number's changed a dramatic amount it probably has a bit but like the number of people who went from not having read anything international or in translation not even being aware of it to people who now are like I love Elena Ferrante or I love Roberto Bolaño before that mm-hmm. or whomever, that that's hugely different. That's a mm. much bigger, bigger group of readers. And I believe that like, that has been, I mean, Bolaño is the one I always think about because he was one of the first ones that became like the global phenomenon yeah. in like 2004 through 2008 period. And, um, he and so he like opened the door for a lot of stuff and there will be endless I mean, publishers are endlessly like repeating things so like if something does well you try and find the next thing that's like mm-hmm. that thing that to do right so that the success of that really changed the game a bit but there had been like before that i quote this all the time but there's an article in the new york times from 2002 that's called america yawns at foreign fiction and it was mm-hmm. literally an article saying nobody reads foreign literature in America. Nobody cares. You can't, I don't know who the Nobel prize winner, this Kertes, I don't know who this person is. Nobody knows who this is. Um, and that, I mean, that happened again with Ecclesia where they're like, this wins yeah. the Nobel prize, but nobody knows, nobody's even heard of this author. Um, that sort of like dismissiveness that was like rampant and like built in to readership and into the the system, into like the promotional side of things from the publisher's bit, into like how they interacted with booksellers about books and translation, about what things were being pitched to reviewers, what things were being considered. At that point in time, it was like there was very much a prejudice against international literature. It was not the real thing. It was like you know not. It wasn't as important. It wasn't seen as important unless it was like a classic book, like Don Quixote. But mm-hmm. like Bolano's success, Fronte's success, Can Oscar, all these like superstar successes have made it a lot less, a lot harder to be that dismissive. And a lot mm-hmm. easier for people to see. Like, not every translation is going to sell a million copies. In fact, most of them don't do well at all. But mm-hmm. the but the the readership and the, the booksellers and the people within the system that can connect a book with readers, they're much more likely to give something a chance and mm. uh, and at least try it than they had been fifteen years ago.
0: Mm. And and why do you? Think that that um, you know, fifteen years ago, it, it was it was so hard, and and kind of you know, Americans were dismissive um, of of anything any fiction coming from from other countries or from, from in translation. And I mean, it's it still continues. You know, mm-hmm. books and translation still continue to have a hard time here. Do you? Yeah. Do you have any specific social or political or cultural reasons uh, or causes in in mind? And I, you know, I know that this is a very vague and very wide, broad question, and yeah. um, there's a lot to talk about, I guess. But yeah, please. So <laughs> yeah, I think, at,
1: I think on one level, at that point in time, there was the belief that a translation is inferior to the original book. Like hmm. they'd be reading something that wasn't the original that was lesser. That that's right. been baked into translation theory and discussions of translations forever. Lost in translation mm-hmm. is like I can't tell you how many uh, articles about open letter and and or Delky have or and or me have included lost in translation in like the title, right? So mm-hmm. like that that phrase alone is that is indicating some lack, and I think that that was part of it. Around the same time, that um, one would have been I don't I think it would have been probably like two thousand and seven too. Um, I did a, a radio show with uh, esther allen for this show that doesn't exist anymore from wisconsin public radio and it was a call-in show and the last caller that called in was like this all sounds great these books that you're talking about these blah, blah blah but like but i'm never gonna read them because i can't pronounce any of the characters names and i was like are you kidding me i was like you can just call them like joe it doesn't matter you're reading in your head like if it's accurate or not, it really doesn't make any difference. It doesn't change the book at all. And they're like, "Oh, I think we're going to end this skull here." Let's <laughs> like, losing this temper. Um, but there was that. There was wow. that. That was a real yeah. thing. And I think that uh-huh. that's still a real thing. Um, but there's also like the cultural aspect of translation isn't incorporated into uh, high school learning or education. My daughter is a junior in high school and hasn't had a single book in translation assigned to her throughout. And maybe, that may be wrong there may have been one or two but like there it's really not a not part of her education and then mm-hmm. even at the university level everything's become so specialized for so long for it became everything became hyper specialized you you read like you know the british novel from 1920 to 1950 you worked on the victorian era you read american literature pre-1900 you read the modernist but you didn't read like the were global connection between those. That didn't happen in like the English departments where most of us that are in either publishing or in like this readerly sense of uh, this group of readers, however broadly you want to define it. A lot of them uh, were English majors whose exposure to translation was through like probably coming across some classics like the De- Don Quixote, Anna Karenina, you know, books like that. And Gabriel Garcia Marquez, but not like contemporary or new or fresh voices. You're much more likely to, to just focus on English. So I think that's part of it too, as to like why there was like this, this hesitancy. And mm-hmm. then the third thing was that there wasn't there wasn't words without borders. There wasn't anything. Mm. Like the closest that you had to someone who cared about international literature that on like a public scale that people would people the general readership would interact with was the complete review. Michael uh, uh website, where he was reviewing tons and tons of books since like 1998, a lot of them in translation, because he's German and reads, or he's, I think he's from Austria, but he reads German, obviously. Mm-hmm. And he was writing about these things from around the world. Aside from that, like, I don't think there was anything else. I don't think mm-hmm. there was an like, uh, advocacy platform. There was no asymptote. There was no words without borders. There's no 3%. There was no like, the, the publishers like Transit, um, Deep Bellum, Europa, Europa didn't exist then. A lot of these, like, they just didn't, they hadn't happened yet. And like Words Without Borders, I think, planted the stake or put the flag down as like, this could be interesting. And they 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 started like shortly after 9-11, which was another one of the moments where people were like, we don't understand the Arab world. And their, the, the sort of like progressive response was we should, you know, get their culture. Like translate mm-hmm. their books, get watch mm-hmm. their movies, learn about this culture, these different these different countries, these different these different viewpoints. Instead of being like, I don't understand, I don't understand why they'd be mad in America, sort of thing. So mm-hmm. there was a, that was a moment. Those two things kind of happen near each mm-hmm. other and give this idea that like learning about translated literature is important because it gives us a sense of what the rest of the world is like and thinks of us. And that there's always the argument that you don't want to bomb people that you understand. And so, anytime that there's like a new war, there'll be a bunch of books translated from that that region, mm-hmm. or there'll be special attention paid to that region. So, at that moment in time, as that's going on, publishers start to look at that. Words of the Borders had initially founded on like this idea of like literature as travel, more or less. You know, like you travel, you connect with the the food and this place and the spirits of something through um, literature. And so, there's those those two things together, I think kind of galvanized everyone. And then mm. as the books started doing better, the Bolaño books, even like at Delkey, we did Voices from Chernobyl by Lana Alexeevich and it won the National mm. Book Circle and later obviously the Nobel Prize. But like that did really well for us. And I think that as those things broke out and people started to get exposure and be like, oh, there are interesting voices from these countries that I had never even heard of. Like I, I don't think that we had been pitched a Romanian or a Hungarian book at all in mm. the time until we reached out to those places. Like, mm. we just didn't. And that's very, very different now.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, what do you think uh, can be done to improve this situation? Uh, so, both on the um, side of U.S. publishers, how to, how to, you know, find more um international voices but also how can right sellers uh improve the situation and of course uh, you already mentioned earlier uh that you somebody from from books of finland or feely um so how do they yeah get woven into the situation too
1: yeah i think that those places are invaluable because they do provide like the the basic background information that you need i think for for publishers like there's a like it's sort of a dance, you know, there's like, you fall in love with the book. Um, sometimes if you don't know a lot about that country, you don't know if that book is really representative um, if for one reason or another. And for bigger publishers, I think that that's more of a concern than it is for like smaller presses of like, are we doing the best book from Hungary? I don't know, but I love mm. this book. Um, mm. Whereas like you kind of want to get, if you want to, if you're a bigger press, you want to do the book that everyone else in the world is doing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um because that's a, like a, a better global, a better option. You 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 make it more likely to ha- be able to earn out your advances and make money mm-hmm. on the book if everyone's doing it throughout the world. And uh, we're not really in that same game. Um, I think that the uh, the the places like the books of Finland and like the Estonian one, various, there's, they're all over. Right, mm-hmm. the way that they can provide like basic information on what the literature history the history of the literary scene is like who are some of the main names who are some of the contemporary names where what kind of groupings do they fall under are there different like kind of movements or or segments they have that information and the ability to bring people to the country which obviously isn't happening right now but mm-hmm. when, when that is happening like you get to see things and they come alive in a way that email never will and so mm-hmm. it's almost like, i mean it is a bit of a seduction um into like different some of these different areas and like i i think back to like going to estonia for the first time and being like i don't know a single thing about estonian literature not a single thing um at that time and then meeting like a dozen authors talking to like the people at um the whatever the estonian literary information center and meeting with a couple not agents but publishers And suddenly having like a map of like 20 different names that were like, this sounds, these all sound interesting for different reasons. And I Mm -hmm. have a sense of this now. That's huge. Like getting the context is big. The other thing that like, that really is making a difference is the advocacy on the behalf of translators, that they are doing more sample translations and bringing them more directly to publishers is, it's not meant to circumvent what you're doing or what right sellers Mm -hmm. are doing. But they have like different connections or different um different relationships. And part of this mm-hmm. industry that you've never, even through this COVID year, that we haven't gotten away from is that a lot of it's decided by personal things and luck. Like it's mm-hmm. personal personalities and luck. Um, mm-hmm. for why some things get published, for why some things happen in certain ways. I mean, it's a it's it's hard to underestimate that. Um, and so some of it is just that those connections happen through the translators and the editors or uh, it, and also with the rights, with the rights sellers and the agents, but there is that part of it that's helping a lot, and that those people mm-hmm. help provide this informal information that's not the agented information. Where right. they information that's crucial is like the 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 sales to different countries, the sales level, yeah. the like the reception, all that, yeah. and then they're providing the translators provide like that outside of that data of like, oh, here's how people like this book or why they like it or here's this or or yeah, that is a good book, but. This other person that did something similar just didn't get the breaks, but it's a better book. Like they have that information because they're familiar with a much broader swath of the of the country's literature. So, and that's super helpful, I think, and is and mm. change the way that we can like get information. I mean, if we want to change the whole situation, though, what well, we mm-hmm. need is money. Everyone needs more. <laughs> strictly yes, strictly <laughs> like not to be crass about it, but like the vast majority of these presses that are doing translations are nonprofits that yeah. are barely breaking even. Um, mm-hmm. And when I've done studies on like the sales of translations, it's very rare for a book to sell more than like 5,000 copies. And the vast majority of them, I believe it was like, when I did this in a couple of years ago uh, for a set of like 35 books, there was one that sold 28,000 copies at the time, which was The Perfect Nanny. And then mm-hmm. there was one that sold 1,500. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And one that sold... Um, like 1,100, and then every other book was under 1,000 copies sold. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And that, that reality is tough because, like, this if you don't, you don't, with translations, you don't get much, many uh, sub rights. So, like, mm-hmm. the way that you can have a book that sells 2,000 copies by an American author, but you sell the rights to like two or three other countries, you work out breaks even, fine. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Translations, we're really banking on the sales and the support of the foreign governments or of individual donors. And Mm -hmm. it creates a a real pressure on the company that trickles down into the translators who are also advocating for like better pay because they're Mm -hmm. spending, you know, their, their fingers are bleeding for (laughs) their nine cents a word um, Mm -hmm. as a type type to try and like make, make their deadlines and, and, you know, stay alive. Um, Mm -hmm. They need more money for, for that as well. But like it can't come from sales. It's not going to come from sales for the vast majority Mm -hmm. of the books. Like no matter Mm -hmm. how much, We've changed. It's still that's going to, that's always, there's, there is a ceiling there of sorts Mm. for for the majority. Um, And I don't know how to solve that problem, but like it's, 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 it's also put a different strain in, in the fact that there are so many people that are interested in translation and so many people that are interested in international authors that it's created, it's raised the cost of them. Right, like, and this is good mm. for your perspective. It's very good, <laughs> it's, it, but it, but it, it it is good. Authors deserve more money. Artists deserve more money. Nobody yeah. nobody wants yeah. to argue with that. Um, but like the 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 costs that are affiliated with the publishing side of things keep going up, but the sales aren't going up at all. The sales are basically steady or slightly down. Um, mm. for a lot of people, on the average, you have those breakouts, but like that's part of the problem in a way. That's part of a a side effect of breakout books is that. The, all the other books that aren't breakouts do worse.
0: Yeah, you know, it I mean, doesn't carry yeah. all of them. Yeah, in the way that
1: you want it to.
0: I mean, that's. I think that's that's also an, an issue not just for books in translation and and not just in the US. I think in recent years we have noticed, or at least I have noticed, that there's you know just a, a small number of titles that sells really well, and then you look further, and then there the midlist kind of is mm-hmm. gone. You see what I mean, yep. and then then there's and then there's there's just all these titles that sell well, as you say, a thousand copies or or, or sometimes or less. So yeah, it's uh I don't know what the solution to that is either. But
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean you can't, It's like a power law problem. Is that once yeah. something starts getting attention, it sucks all the attention. Yeah, and then it sucks all the sales and gets all. It, it's really hard. I don't know in our world, short of like. <laughs> short of an apocalypse in which we no longer have internet and things like that. Um, I, oh, God damn, I shouldn't say that on March 11th, um, but, but sort of like, sort of like changing the, 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 essential structure of how capitalist systems work and how mm-hmm. information is distributed and how sales happen in that way. I don't know that we can change that. It's more like finding the way to prop up that mid list in the, the back end Um, and if it is, I mean, it used to be that you'd, you'd have the theory of like, we have a couple of books that do really, really well. And those, those subvent the rest of the list. Yeah. And a lot of like the MBA business school side of things have been trying to get away from that be like, every book should earn its own way back. Mm -hmm, Every book mm -hmm. should be profitable on its own, uh, which is, which is really difficult. The more risk you take, um, and translation for better for worse is it's not necessarily more risky than doing a bunch of like, uh, debut American writers, but it sort of is.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm yeah i mean
1: go for it, like a thousand and oh one other thing that's complicated yeah. with this. the one other thing that's really complicated is that when you do a book for a, like a, a non-translated book a book written in english when you publish that book like a lot of the money and the payments are based on sales right as a percentage of sales you get royalty the advance is sort of a prediction of the royalty, oh, how many copies would sell blah blah blah, blah. For translations, you have that part for the acquisition of the, the underlying rights, but the translator is paid as like a worker, as a like per per word. So mm-hmm. if you want to go for like a big book, like I'm looking at Kin, the book from Archipelago that's coming out that's a thousand pages, like the translator gets paid for every word in there. And then the book might not sell, they still get their same amount of money. So like the, the incentives are misaligned slightly there, and mm-hmm. it makes like the risk. The risk of doing translations is slightly heightened, not because it costs so much to pay the translator, but because if you go for it with like something that is longer, you can get really you can you can end up in a lot of trouble
0: Mm -hmm. if it doesn't Mm -hmm. work. Yeah, yeah, and you you mentioned the uh, the um the translation grants, so, you know, from from Estonia and from Finland, and yeah. the there there are you know many countries have this um this this in place, but it barely ever, if ever, even covers uh, all of the translation costs. Right? It's yeah. always it's always a percentage, like fifty no, percentage or thirty of- or seventy percent. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: exactly. So it's a portion of it, and that's really helpful. But that also creates a a weird inequity in the world literature of that if you're if you're a press that wants to be conservative you're only going to be doing things where you can get grants and which mm, countries mm. don't have grants there's uh, they're the ones that you think <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like latin america doesn't have a lot of grants central america mm-hmm. doesn't have a lot of grants like this india mm. doesn't um various parts of eastern europe and asia so it's mm. like those, those sections then you're you yeah. don't have that, you don't have that safety net so mm-hmm. It's uh, it's tricky if you're like really looking at it from a, uh, a from whatever dollars and pennies sort of way
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. dollars and cents yeah um, yeah and then you mentioned the 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 translators that uh, they often also are a good source of, of- information for for us publishers or us editors and 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 you know you you mentioned uh, that you, you don't mean to sidetrack me but I think it's a uh, me or people like me agents right sellers and I think it's uh I, I'm always um very much in favor of you know as the, the more we are to advocate for international literature, the better. Yeah. So, um, and and I do also know that there is often already you know a pre established relationship between the translator and and the editor, and um, they may have worked on other projects together, so they may have already you know, this knowledge of each other's tastes and, uh, which, which, which may not always be the case for, for the right seller. So, um, so it's definitely a very important, uh, important part of the chain that the translators now, when they, when they get caught by, uh, you know, and, and fall in love with a title, uh, they, you know, then, and, and often they translate, parts of it but they also do it they take a risk because they're they're not paid they're not being paid for their work so and it's not um it's not guaranteed that they that you know an editor will fall for the book and will uh, end up buying the rights and therefore uh, commissioning the translation so well, so even, the translators
1: hmm? even one step further the the, uh, the publisher could buy the rights but use a different translator uh,
0: yeah 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 that 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 i guess that's that happens too yeah so so how do you what 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 is the position of translators and h- how are they viewed in the us in general like i'm i'm often stunned when i go to bookstores and i, I look obviously i always go to the i always look for for foreign uh for international books mm-hmm. I, I i barely ever see the name of the translator on the covers for instance
1: <laughs> i feel like this is i feel like this is a this <laughs> is uh, this is a, this is a, a little uh A little gaslighting me here.
0: No. No, no, I'm just
1: (laughs) what we did. Okay, it's an observation. Yeah, we had always initially um we had always put the name of the translator on the cover. At Delky books, Delki's translators are on the front cover. Mm -hmm. Our translators for open letter historically were on the front cover. We went through Mm -hmm. a change a couple years ago when um we didn't we were having trouble with cover design Mm -hmm. and to try and reinvent a look of open letter i simplified mm-hmm. the covers the the mm-hmm. constraints because the person was oh, getting bogged I, down
0: yeah and so, so, I, sorry, you know, so I, sorry i sorry i see what you mean now no i wasn't attacking like open know, letter right? I know. I know. <laughs> no 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 it's i, it's I just, didn't uh, have yeah right okay but it's so, interesting but you know, to, to to hear, hear
1: I yeah <laughs> I do, so, so we moved so to to take to get rid of some of the constraints we took off like blurbs and the translator's name off the front so that they mm-hmm. couldn't rely on tax to design it and mm-hmm. we ended up working with other designers as well and like it it's it, it and oddly enough it worked like the book sold better by putting the, the translator's name on the back seemingly mm-hmm. than than the front cover and I don't think it's because the translator name on the front cover is like dismissive to someone or someone's like oh I'm not going to read that because the translator's is there I mm-hmm. think there's something about like the simplicity and appeal right. of like the cover that they just don't need to think about it and then they flip it over and they can see the information's there the information's not hidden and mm-hmm. on our book and on a lot of like i went through when we were doing this and looking into it went through like grove um new directions uh europa and nobody was really putting them on the front cover mm-hmm. new york review books like everyone was putting it on the back and so mm-hmm. like you know i don't think that it's like it doesn't. I don't want it to feel like it's being dismissive towards the translator because mm-hmm. that's absolutely not what I want intend to do. But I mm-hmm. really do want to see if, like, if we can get more readers for this book. That's the sure. goal. The yeah. translator should benefit from that as well. And if mm-hmm. it's something that simple, like, why not try it and mm-hmm. see what happens? But then there are the the presses like um, Penguin, Random House. Um, if it's not a, a household name translator, the translator is like buried, buried. In that case, Mm. I think it's more of a choice to like, hide it. Um, Mm. Whereas we're not trying to hide anything, we're just trying to shift it to a different space, right? But Mm. like, there's, um, I'll see books from like, Penguin Random House be like, who translated this? And you have to find it like, on the copyright page, or like buried on the back jacket flap underneath, like, uh, the author's bio will be like, translated by blank, but have no information about that person. And those ones I do feel are like, Intentionally trying to obfuscate the fact that the book is translated as if the translation were a detriment of a, a flaw instead of a bug instead of a feature. And mm. to put the translator on the front cover as a feature is really good. And I like the presses that do that. I don't think that there's one solution, but I think that you yeah. do need to have their, You do, and every book can be different. The book we just come that's coming out in two weeks, uh, On Time and Water, the translator's name is on the front cover of that. Um, and that it works with that book design. I think mm. that it doesn't have to, I don't think it has to be rigid, but I do you think that the translator's name has to be on the front mm-hmm. or back cover, or on the mm-hmm. flaps if you have if you have French flaps, but not just on like the copyright page and not just on the title page? That's that's that I don't like.
0: Mm-hmm. But it's interesting that you that you actually did notice an uptick in in sales once you you changed your design and uh, made it you know kind of a a leaner design from what I yeah. from what yeah. I understand. Mm. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And but, do you? I mean?
1: Dubravka Ugrešesh could talk about this cuz her name like really would be Dubravka Ugrešesh and um mm-hmm. she got rid of all the diacritical marks and doesn't want them published because she's like they it's too scary. She's like I just <laughs> she's like I don't care if people mispronounce my name at whatever like but if they see all these little guys over over the letters they're going to be like uh, I don't know about this. Um oh. so she she reduced that and uh for that for that very reason of trying mm. to like make it more appealing. Mm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so what do you think? So the last couple of years, we've seen all these uh, yeah, Netflix and and, and other streaming uh, platforms that have these international shows that really are very popular. I mean, very recently, there is uh, uh, Lupin, or I don't know how to pronounce it in English, actually, Lupin, probably. Yeah. Um, and, and Call My Agent from France. And there is a film Casa de Papel from Spain. Do you, so do you think that... Um, Obviously, people, when they watch those series here in the U.S., they know that it's a foreign series. Do you think that this will help? um, You know, will it spill over into the book world as in people will be more open to stories from abroad? It definitely can't
1: hurt. But um, I think that there might be the bigger question is like, what is is it? is it the story that is in translation or that's international that's appealing to them? Or is it the fact that it's a TV and be like the visuals of it? Like how yeah. much, how much role does the visual and that play versus the idea of it being another culture might, there might be a lot more, there's going to be a lot more people. I mean, a lot more people watch Netflix than read books. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I think it, it might be a, a, a bigger medium problem, media problem than a, specific translation one but i mean I, why not i mean it would be great if people like mm-hmm. really liked uh like the dark is it it's just dark right the german yeah. one yeah, and the, yeah. And they're like, oh yeah i see a german book like i remember liking this german series maybe i'll like this book but i'm just not sure how closely those two are going to end up being linked mm-hmm. so much of like you know i just like this series i like watching it um mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. whatever reason i like this actor or i like the the cinematography i know someone who, who watches like all finished dramas crime dramas on Mm-hmm. Uh, never, but has never once asked about like a finished crime book
0: hmm.
1: and we have you know we have them that <laughs> <Like, Yep. laughs> they exist widely. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Well, that's yeah. That's interesting. I mean, yeah. I'm I'm maybe just wishful thinking and kind of hoping that um this will kind of open open the broaden the horizon of of U.S. Uh, potential U.S. readers who are watching Netflix and and other uh, platforms. But you're right. I mean, and and also it's it it may be too early to to see a, a real shift for that. But yeah. um but yeah, it's often people also just who watch Netflix don't necessarily um are interested in reading books uh so it's
1: more time consuming I mean, yeah. it's, it's part of the mm-hmm. the time consumption and the money of mm-hmm. books is like a weird spot like you get a lot of hours of entertainment for a low amount of money mm-hmm. but for that same amount of money you get infinite amounts of entertainment for a month from netflix
0: yeah and mm-hmm. that's
1: it's like it, it the, the those ratios if anyone like logically thinks about them
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh don't necessarily work in our favor but mm-hmm. i think that The people who are—I think there are people who are just going to always be readers, and I wonder if we'll start swinging back towards more readership, especially now that there's so many streaming options. It's so overwhelming. Oh, I'm (laughs) lost. Overwhelming, and like it's so much easier to be like, oh, you know, here's like a row of twenty books. I'll read one of these. I don't want to have to go on—I don't want to have to go on HBO Max and have them like try and pitch me on fourteen different. Movies and series I've never heard of, and I don't know what to find, and it's super confusing. I'm just old, though. I think I, I, I hate all those interfaces. I'm just like, it's, it's too complicated. I don't. no but
0: it's it's true i mean we we have uh a a couple of the 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 streaming platforms and i i always you know the, the more you have the more you're lost and and the less you really know what you want to watch because it's just an overwhelm of choices so i i i do like the idea of you know when you're standing in front of 20 books you can you know you can pick out a few read the back flaps and and then just pick one and that's definitely not the same experience when you when you know you're on hbo max what you say or hulu or whichever other platform and you just yeah you just have to swim through everything and yeah i i often feel like i'm drowning
1: (laughs) There is, i mean in behavioral economics that i think 20 is like one of their magic numbers of like if you give people too many choices they always revert to like the thing that they've always done in the past
0: yeah like like if you look
1: at uh, a lot of studies were based around like jelly purchasing jelly because the jelly section of a supermarket has so many options right Uh like it feels like but most people will end up buying like the same one or two things over and over and over again. It's not like mm-hmm. you—it's not like you consider the other options. You're just like, mm-hmm. So, like, there, there is something to that with like the overwhelmingness of of Hulu or or Disney Plus. You just go back to the same thing or the thing that's being advertised. It's way easier. You don't have to use the brain strength. Yeah. And, uh, And that that it, it's a bummer in a way.
0: Yeah. 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 Because there's it's there where are, are get
1: lost there. again. A lot yeah. of this stuff is going to get lost. Like, there's going to be great shows that are on all of these platforms nobody hears about because they're all watching, like, the the top things for their specific bit. And then with the individual algorithmic aspect of things, like the Amazonification of, like, of promotion, like, it's just going to keep reinforcing the same bits. Like, you're not going gonna, to... It's hard to be serendipitous in a world that's controlled by, like, algorithms and this sort of, like, overwhelming choice.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. That oh, sounds
1: super bleak. Hey, <laughs> it's <March> 2021.
0: <laughs> so, <laughs> well, so let's let's talk about some. Uh, let's steer away from the the Amazonification and algorithms and all that. So, what what which books did you read recently, and and you know, if possible, none that you're related with, um, for for open letter or um, you know, the, for professionally, but any just kind of random reads that you did and that you would like to recommend to our listeners. He, oh, you can also you can also pitch. Well, let's you can also pitch titles from <laughs> from open uh, letter. No, no, no. Let's, so, let's
1: um, <laughs> I mean, this is sort of connected, but not. But there's a uh, Rumina. Oh, how do I pronounce her last name? Um, let me just get this right. Uh, it's a book called My Husband by a Macedonian author, Rumina Buzarovoska. I know I'm butchering that, but it's a short story collection that came out I like sometime last year from Delki Archive, actually. And I ended up reading it because um, of various things that are going on with that. But I, I wanted to write a thing about um, about the female authors that Delki has published and like this sort of affinities that they have. And so I started reading this book and it's short stories that are like so sharp and so funny and so like, uh, like perfectly like pitched. They just got this perfect voice to them. Um, and she was like one of the people that really made the Me Too movement happen in Macedonia. And the book is like reflective of that in a lot of ways, but it's so good. I I love, love, love that book. That, that book is one of my favorites I've read in the past year. And I teach a class on translation um, literature and translation in the spring. And so we've been reading a bunch of stuff. And one of the other books that that I really liked was Echo on the Bay by Masa Ono, um, that Two Lines published, a f- um, I don't know, a few months ago or last year, too. And it's a book that like, actually, to be honest, reading it, I was like, eh, this is okay. I don't love this. But when I started talking to my class about it, as we talked about the structure and about how the book functioned, it became so much more interesting. And it was like through that conversation that the book really opened itself up. And it made me realize that, that there's a lot of times that we just don't do that anymore. Like I, I don't think we have that, a lot of people don't have that opportunity, I guess, or maybe aren't in that position, but it was really great to read a book that you like don't love and then have it converted into something that's really interesting through Mm. interaction with other people's responses and just having to explain why, what it was like, it's so, it's so much easier in our, in in the world to like have read this and just put it aside and never thought about it again. Mm. Um, And that would have been an option, but I'm going to highly recommend this book because I think that the structure of it is very curious and, uh, and, and brings up a lot of like questions on storytelling and on the way that things can be related through both memory and through multiple uh, perspectives in time.
0: Hmm. All right. Well, thank you. Yeah. And you just briefly mentioned uh, Delki because a lot of things are going on. Can you just briefly um, explain that? (laughs) Yeah. So, so, yeah. Far yeah. yeah.
1: is a, a question. So when I yeah. left there, um, uh, there like I left, and John O'Brien continued to be the who's was the founder and publisher of, of Delkey, went through a series of different transitions at different universities, ended up like not at a university and with like next to no staff, um, had problems retaining staff and had severe severe health problems, mm-hmm. and so as time was going on, we talked about like what the legacy of Delkey could be and how it could be retained, how it could be preserved. What's going to happen when John dies? Um, and he's like, I can't ever get employees. Nobody wants to work here. And part of that was because of his reputation and uh, just the fact that like the, the press had gone from its point, from its like best moment into something that was much more murky and difficult to like, to, to, to focus on. And John was like, not well. And so we talked about it as like a way somehow that, that I could be involved and that we could maintain the editorial nature of, of Delkey. So as it worked out, um, there's going to be a transfer of the assets from Delkey to deep Phelum so that the, so deep Phelum could retain and handle all of like the money side of things, the grant side of things, the contractual side of things, because the getting the university of Rochester involved in such a thing would have been really, really messy um, Mm -hmm. in particular because nobody knew what Delkey was like what What's owed? What money is owed in royalties? What money is owed mm. in whatever? Nobody really mm. had a clear sense of that. And John definitely didn't. And so we were planning on uh, on getting that going. And then in May, like in a couple of months, being able to like unveil a sort of structured plan whereby business operations were in one place. And I'd oversee like the editorial guidance, like be an editorial consultant of sorts and like help help figure out, help, get, help sign on books when appropriate, and also like, just make sure that the ones that are in the pipeline are getting edited, make sure mm-hmm. that like, the backlist that's important is being preserved. And since I knew, I don't know that there's that many more, there's probably like six of us, 10 of us that have read a significant number of Delkey books, like out of the 900 that have been published, like mm-hmm. have read a, a, a majority of them. Um, and so there is like a benefit to like being able to look through and know all this and be able to like, try and recapture and re-release books and bring new attention. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that was always the flaw after I left was that Delkey didn't get attention for anything. And so mm. there are these gems like my husband that nobody, I, I doubt that anyone listening to this has heard of. And it's a phenomenally good book. And like, if it had come out under different circumstances from different press, it would have been like highly, highly lauded. Um, mm. And so I want not get that going again. And however, whatever that means and however that works without sacrificing anything for open letter, um, mm-hmm. but just being able to like, help lend that expertise and that vision of like what John's vision was. So we were planning on this, like being a slow progressing deal, but the day after he signed the agreement, he died. And so mm-hmm. it, it all became immediate. Um, right. And that was, and that has caught us like not entirely off guard, but there's mm-hmm. like a lot of stuff of like uh, figuring out like, you know, where contracts are, where royalty statements mm. are Things that are like very practical um, mm-hmm. that we would have been able to take care of in a much more you know
0: paced <laughs> and yeah paced way mm-hmm, at least mm-hmm, instead mm-hmm.
1: of the like the like oh john died and here's like 400 messages of, like coming <laughs> <"What's that> in <laughs> my book did you know that I have this and they're, they're, we we literally this is like one funny story is that um, when we went to his house cuz the the john uh, house the basement was the delkey offices when i worked there and and curtain was up until he passed away and on his desk He had, like, a handwritten list, partially typed, partially handwritten, in, like, 25-point font, um, and on, like, multiple pages of, like, yellow legal-sized paper, 81 titles that were, like, the Delkey schedule to publish. Oh, wow. And and so (laughs) it's been a while. It wasn't until, like, last week that I think I finally got a grasp on which of of those books are real and Mm -hmm. which of those are not.
0: Ah, okay. <laughs>
1: so, or like we're never, they were never contracted or like, or mm. like, you know, they were like ideas, but not actual projects in the works. So mm. mm-hmm. it's, yeah.
0: really,
1: it's been a, it's been a bit, it's been a, it's been a thing. Like it'll be mm. books that we find out about, but don't know who's translating them because the mm-hmm. two things are connected and there's no information. The there's no system. Lost, so. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the other thing I'm doing related to that though, is this, um, semi, regular uh newsletter called mining the Delkey archive that's telling stories about Delkey and analyzing some of the books or or looking at some of the different aspects of the press. And they have like a lot of like a lot of I can I refer to them as episodes because I think of them as like more multimedia, but a lot mm-hmm. of episodes that I've plotted out already or like planned on. Um, and I think that that's going to be really fun to do um mm-hmm. in terms of like uh, not just like as a business thing, but as like a, a personal research thing of going mm-hmm. back to books are seeing like what happened between 2015 and now like what mm. what happened at these different periods and like what are these books that i that were legendary and like c- crucial to my reading life um but came out you know 20 years ago and now they are being rediscovered and so it's interesting to see like this pattern because of Delky's belief in keeping books in print forever and finding new gener- generations of readers every so often the press is almost 40 years old and it has mm. 900 books like that that's possible now in a way that, mm. that, that even more so than before because of things like the internet and, and uh, Twitter and Instagram and ways that you can reach people and this like growth in like booksellers that are very big advocates for uh, quote unquote difficult literature or international literature. So that mm. part's very fun for me, like from a mental standpoint of like mm. digging into, but it's also like uh, a good way to like keep this list alive
0: hmm. Yeah. And can people already sign up for this newsletter? Yep.
1: Yeah, it's at uh, delkiarchive.substack.com.
0: Okay. I will you add a You can watch
1: the first this. episode has a Ooh. video of me taking a tour of the office. Oh, wow. Died. And mm-hmm. when you see that, you will have no questions about everything I just said. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like, <Right>. oh. <laughs> okay. It's, <interesting. laughs> it's an office. I'm very curious now. Oh, <laughs> All right. Well, I will add a I will add a link to the to the show notes for for that. Um, so I've been taking up a lot of your time already. So I think yeah, we 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 covered a lot uh, during this interview. Is there anything else that you'd like to mention here before? Um, yeah, before we end it.
1: Uh, I don't think so. Just uh, check out check out Open Letters' site. We have a lot of good books coming out this year. is a big banner year for us. I think and uh other than that like just start reading and support your local bookstores and your indie presses
0: Mm -hmm. yay (laughs) i second that well thank you so much chad this was uh, a lot of fun it was great to reconnect with you um through the podcast and uh yeah see you next time in amsterdam randomly or (laughs) wherever
1: (laughs) it's gonna happen
0: i hope so all right take care Bye 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 Thanks again for listening to the Makebooks Travel Podcast. I hope you had a good time and learned a thing or two. Check out the agency's website, Two 2seasagency.com, for more information and resources about the international publishing scene. Oh, and if you liked what you heard, please leave a positive review. Thank you. Merci et à la prochaine.